Their problem, listen to this, their problem was that they didn't understand the outworking of God's covenants in redemptive history. Their problem was they didn't possess a systematic theology of the Old Testament. And therefore they missed the bigness of God's salvation in the world. But don't worry, Jesus is going to set them straight. That's what this passage this morning is all about. He patiently teaches them to see beyond the literal movements of Jesus to the symbolic. This is Andrew Smith, pastor of Christ Reformed Community Church here in St. John's County, Florida. I would like to extend to you an invitation to worship with us each Lord's Day at 1015 a.m. Our address is 161 Hampton Point Drive, Suite 2, St. Augustine, Florida, 32092. You can also access archived video versions of these same sermons on our Facebook page. Additionally, our sermons are broadcast live on Facebook every Sunday morning. Now, let's open God's Word and listen to the sermon for today's broadcast. Please remain standing and take your copy of God's Word. Turn with me to Mark chapter 8 this morning. Mark chapter 8. We want to look together at verses 11 through 21. So I want to read our passage. The title of the message, Don't Forget the Bread. Mark 8, beginning in verse 11. Let us hear God's Word together. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, that is Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, Why does this generation seek a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, Watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I broke the five loaves for the five thousand, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the four thousand? How many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? Thus ends the reading of God's word. Please be seated and let us ask him for his help this morning as we look at this text together. Our Father, we are grateful for your word, the clarity of your word. We ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would bring it to bear upon our souls this morning. We know that your word is authoritative. It is inerrant. It is without error. It is inspired. It is sufficient. Speak to our hearts. May your Holy Spirit apply this passage to our lives. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. We have witnessed, as we have studied the Gospel of Mark together, Interestingly, two feedings of two different crowds where Jesus multiplied loaves and fishes for the hungry people. First one was in the province of Galilee for 5,000 Jewish households. Jesus multiplied bread and we saw that there were 12 smaller baskets left over for the disciples to eat and then share with Jesus. The second one we saw rather recently Uh, in Mark chapter 8 verses 1 through 10 last week where Jesus feeds 4,000 Gentile households in the pagan region of the Decapolis and there we saw that there were seven larger leftover baskets of food remaining. Now as we looked at the feeding of the Gentile crowd last week we saw that there was some hesitation upon the disciples part to help Jesus. This is contrasted with his feeding of the 5,000 Jewish households in Galilee where it was the disciples who approached Jesus about this food crisis in a rural area where there wasn't any place to to buy bread and it was getting late. But we saw in the feeding of the 4,000 Gentile households um, that there was no compassion on their part. They had no compassion for these Gentiles who had been three days without food with Jesus. Uh, The Jewish crowds earlier had only been with Jesus one day and the disciples were concerned about their hungry bellies but no such compassion on these Gentiles. And what was highlighted was really 
the compassion of Jesus and the compassionlessness of the disciples. Really, the reluctance of the disciples to find a solution. And Jesus himself forcing these Jewish apostles to share a feast with the Gentile crowd. Now, we pointed all of that out because we believe that Mark is purposely organizing his material in such a way that we will be able to read, as it were, in the white spaces of the Bible. These facts could be easily overlooked, but they play a large role in understanding the theological point that Mark is driving at. A major feature of Mark's gospel is to show how God's covenant blessings to reach the families or the households of the earth are now reaching them as promised to Father Abraham. That Israel's salvation inheritance would belong to outsiders, those of other nations, which was promised in the Old Testament. You remember Isaiah chapter 49 and verse 6 said that God would save a remnant of Jews, but that the Messiah would be a light to the nations. And in the coming to earth, Jesus was announcing the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was at hand. Jesus was therefore establishing a new covenant in fulfillment of God's covenant with Abraham. In fact, just back in chapter 8 and verse 3, Jesus had compassion and he says, if I send the crowd away, they will faint on the way. Some of them have come from far away. That language from far away was language we noted in the Old Testament used to describe the Jews that would be brought back out of their exiled land, Gentile lands. Here, Jesus uses that same sort of language. And um, if you go with me just for a moment to Acts chapter 2, this is a, a very, very important point because when Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost, he says in verse 39, this promise is for you, the promise of salvation, and for your children, and notice this, for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. His promise is for you and your children and for all those who are far off, Gentiles that weren't associated with God, those far away would be brought in. Peter understood after Jesus resurrected and ascended that he was to preach the same message that would reach to the Gentiles who were far away. Mark's original readers are Gentiles, they're residing in Rome. And Mark wants to assure them that their salvation is real, that God through Christ does embrace penitent sinners who are hungry and thirsty after righteousness and to them does belong the covenants. To them does belong the kingdom of God. As you know, Jesus is now in his retirement ministry in Gentile territory, primarily there to prepare the disciples for his departure. But along the way, he heals scores of Gentiles, which is really a foreshadowing of the mass inclusion of Gentiles when the gospel would be later preached by the apostles. Remember, Jesus told them that you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Everything Jesus does in his retirement ministry and healing these Gentiles is a foreshadowing of his compassion upon Gentiles to embrace them into the kingdom of God. And even before Jesus entered Gentile territory, uh, Jesus uh, was on a mission. He healed all sorts of people that were outcasts in society. You remember the leper back in chapter 1, an outcast of Jewish society. The conversion of Matthew and Jesus' association with tax collectors and sinners in chapter 2. Jesus' healing of the man with the withered hand purposely on the Sabbath to show the religious leaders that they worship the Sabbath day instead of worshiping Christ who fulfilled the Sabbath. Jesus also healed um, that demoniac and then sent that demoniac um, into the region of the Decapolis. You remember it was that Syrophoenician woman whose daughter also had demons who came to Jesus and Jesus said that she could become part of his household and enjoy the children of Israel's breadcrumbs back in chapter 7 verses 24 through 30. And right after that Jesus healed a mute and deaf man uh, who was also a Gentile. That was in fulfillment of Isaiah 35 that said when the kingdom came that the mute would speak. As a matter of fact, all of this 
was not only simultaneously compassion on Gentiles, but it was a judgment on Israel herself. Later, Jesus would cleanse the temple, illustrative of the fact that God was cleaning house. God would preserve a Jewish remnant, but the gospel would go to the nations. And we've alluded to it many, many, many times before, but remember when Jesus encountered the Roman centurion, he had these thoughts on his mind. He said, never have I seen such great faith, not even in Israel. And I tell you that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of God. There will be those Gentiles from the east and the west, it's language of the Old Testament, who will become part of God's covenant promises. And then he says this, the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. All of this being put together sees that um, one of Mark's primary points is to point to Jesus as the bread of life. And I've said it before, John in his gospel is more explicit about this because John makes statements like this, quoting Jesus, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger, whoever believes in me shall never thirst. He's more explicit about it. But clearly all of the gospel writers see Jesus as they record these accounts of him feeding the multitudes as the fulfillment of bread, the fulfillment of of the manna in the wilderness, the fulfillment of Isaiah 55, that those who hunger and thirst after God will be fed when the Messiah comes. All of this is literally being fulfilled and the multiplication of the bread and loaves, but there is a spiritual meaning behind it. Don't miss that. We saw that last week there were seven large baskets left over from the feeding of the 4,000, plenty of salvation bread, left over for any hungry sinners. In the feeding of the 5,000, in chapter 6, there were 12 smaller leftover baskets. That represented the 12 apostles who reflected the 12 tribes of Israel, the newly reconstituted Israel, where God would preserve a small remnant of Jews from his covenant with Abraham in order to reach the larger world with the gospel. This seems to be rather inescapable. It seems to be rather inescapable, and it would be more than ironic for Jesus to lead Jews out into a wilderness where they're starving and to multiply bread and loaves and then turn around and lead Gentiles into another wilderness where they're starving for three days and feed them miraculously with loaves if he was not reenacting exactly what God did with Moses and Israel in the wilderness. It's obvious. Jesus' whole life was illustrative of Israel in a microcosm form. Jesus was declaring he was the manna from heaven. And by feeding the multitudes of Jews, feeding the multitudes of Gentiles, he was saying what Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, there is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Paul uses that language in Ephesians chapter 2. You know it well. But Jesus speaks about these Gentile believers. They were at one time the uncircumcision, but they were separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope without God in the world, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, there's that language again, far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Jesus is the bread that unites all sorts of sinners and satisfies their hungry souls to give to them eternal life so that they never die. Mark is bringing that out. But Mark is not done with this theme of bread because here in verses 11 through 21, we read in verse 14, the disciples forgot to take more than loaf, one loaf of bread with them. And then in verse 15, Jesus uses that occasion to tell them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod. After that, in verses 17 through 21, Jesus reinforces the symbolic significance of the numbers in the feedings of the multitudes, and he really concludes from all of that that the disciples have a hard heart. They failed to see the symbolism behind the feeding. They wanted to interpret their Bibles literalistically and they were short-sighted. They had no compassion on the disciples. 
They interpreted Jesus' actions as purely literal, with no spiritual significance. They refused to see what they knew he was teaching them symbolically, and that is through his actions he was teaching them that uh, they were beginning to adopt the blind, pessimistic spirit of the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed that salvation was only for clean Jewish people who worked for their righteousness. Jesus had compassion on Gentiles. Jesus' theology seemed too radical to the disciples, too symbolic, too far-fetched, not religious enough for their sensitivities. His outreach to the Gentiles didn't seem right. Their problem, listen to this, their problem was that they didn't understand the outworking of God's covenants in redemptive history. Their problem was they didn't possess a systematic theology of the Old Testament. And therefore, they missed the bigness of God's salvation in the world. But don't worry, Jesus is going to set them straight. That's what this passage this morning is all about. He patiently teaches them to see beyond the literal movements of Jesus to the symbolic. He teaches them about bread. I love bread. When we first got married, first couple of meals, Corey prepared, didn't have bread. She learned really quick it would be very hard for me to eat without bread. I judge every restaurant I go to by their bread. Do you have bread? Is it free bread? How much bread will you give me? What does it taste like? What does it look like? Go to Panera Bread. I order a soup bowl with a little bit of soup and a lot of bread. Sir, would you like chips or an apple as a side? No, I want bread as a side. Give me bread and then I'll eat the bowl. In this passage, Jesus is telling the disciples, don't forget the bread. Gospel bread is for hungry sinners regardless of their background, regardless of their depth of sin, regardless of their religious pedigree. The gospel is for hungry sinners. Don't forget the bread for your own souls. Don't forget the bread for other needy sinners. He is the only one who fulfills and satisfies us with salvation. Mark continues that theme in these verses, teaching us that only the spiritually hungry are fed the salvation bread of Jesus, none of us deserve salvation and none of us receives this bread apart from the secret operation of the Spirit of God which causes our hearts to ache for Christ. He brings all sorts of sinners to himself, the near and the far, the Jew and the Gentile. He blesses them and the question this morning is, do you have ears to hear and eyes to see that salvation only comes to the hungry, hungry penitent? That's the point. Now, there are six headings that carry us through this passage and bring out the above points that I just elucidated. Six headings, and we'll begin in verse 11. Notice with me, number one, where the diabolical debate ends between Jesus and the religious leaders. Verse 11 says, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, that is Jesus, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now, we know from Matthew's parallel account that it's not just the Pharisees. But it's also the Sadducees who came with them. In Matthew chapter 16 and verse 1, Matthew provides a little bit more detail. The Pharisees and Sadducees came to test him and asked him to show them a sign from heaven. These two groups came to Jesus after he crossed the lake. He had just fed the 4,000 and he crossed the lake. This is what he did after he fed the 5,000, he crossed the lake. There's a similar pattern here. But they come to him and argue with him. Now listen to this. They want to debate him in order to discredit him before the crowds. The Pharisees and Sadducees didn't get along. They were arch enemies. They're joining forces to oppose our Lord. The Pharisees were legalists in Judaism, placing their rabbinical regulations surrounding the law above Scripture, worshiping their law, their extra-biblical rules. They were fastidious legalists. Sadducees were the exact opposite. They were part of the Jewish aristocracy. They were only culturally Jewish. They claimed to hold to the law of God, but they denied many parts of the Old Testament. They denied the resurrection. They denied the existence of angels. They denied the immortality of the soul. You couldn't find two groups at more polar opposites. The Pharisees were religionists. The Sadducees were secularists. In fact, uh, the Sadducees were the ones that operated everything on the temple grounds. They hired the temple police, set the temple policies. 
They had a racket on the sale of sacrificial animals during Israel's feast, charging inflated prices to fill their pockets with filthy lucre. They were materialistic. The Pharisees were legalistic. The Sadducees materialistic. The Pharisees worshipped the law of God. They were legalistic. The Sadducees opportunistic. But together they composed a diabolical force to oppose Jesus. And notice, they wanted to debate Jesus on this occasion. Notice verse 11, by seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Now that word seeking literally means they attempted to gain control of him. They were opposing him. Jesus had just returned from feeding 4,000 Gentile households miraculously, but they want to quibble with Jesus because that was literal bread. That was bread of the earth. That wasn't bread from heaven. Moses gave bread from heaven. This would have been their thinking. Moses gave bread from heaven. You just multiplied literal bread. They came and tested him. The Greek word for test could be translated tempted, and by the way, that's exactly how it's translated in chapter 1, verse 13, to speak about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness, where Satan tempted Christ, trying to offer him the kingdoms of the world through some miraculous display that would draw crowds. This is just as diabolical as what Satan did in the wilderness. They are tempting Jesus, testing Jesus, in the same way Satan did. This was a cheap offer to establish his kingdom on the grounds of physical miracles alone instead of, listen to this, what those miracles illustrated. There was symbolism behind them. The miracles were signs that pointed to deeper spiritual realities. The raising of dead sinners, the restoring of spiritual blindness and deafness, achieving victory over Satan's kingdom of demons through exorcisms, but the Jews, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians one twenty one, the Jews demand a sign. The religious establishment market wants a verifying miracle in the skies that Jesus is ministering, preaching, and performing miracles on behalf of God, not Satan. Back in chapter 3, in verse 22, the scribes came to him and said, He is possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of the demons. Jesus, I know how you perform these miracles. You do it in the power of Satan. Now they're coming to him, diabolically, the power of Satan, with hard hearts, blind eyes. They can't see that they have a miracle standing before them, born of the virgin, performing miracles, preaching from the authority of God. His very incarnation wasn't enough of a sign from heaven. And by the way, neither would his resurrection be because they would know that occurred and they would conspire to cover it up. The issue was they had hard hearts. They're not looking for an answer. They're looking for an argument. They're looking for a debate, not a determination to be made. They've already made their determination. Jesus isn't who he claimed to be. And if he was, this was a trap. Prove who you are. Prove who you are. If Jesus refused to do that, they could look at the crowds and say, see, He has no power. He has no sign from heaven. Um, If Jesus did do it, he would be capitulating to what they wanted. There were all sorts of signs in the heavens. The sun and the moon stood still under Joshua. Elijah called thunder down out of heaven. He prayed that it wouldn't rain. For three years it didn't. He prayed and then it poured rain from heaven. These Jews are seeking a sign. They want a sign from heaven. But the issue is they have hard hearts. Let me just tell you this morning, if God has to write a message for you in the sky in order for you to believe in his existence, in his power, in his mercy, in his grace, then you have a hard heart of unbelief as well. Skepticism regarding God's revelation of himself in Christ is not noble, it's diabolical. It's not sophisticated, it's sinful. It may be so-called intellectual, but it's not biblical. And it will not award you heaven, it will award you hell. Same place the religious leaders went to. The Bible says faith is the evidence of things not seen. And yet the Bible helps us to see a lot about God. Certainly enough to believe in his existence, his power, and his offer of salvation to sinners. 
You don't need all that's in charismania either. You don't need signs to attest anything. God has spoken to us in his written revelation. And the very word of God stood before the religious leaders and yet they reject him. Hard hearts. Now hang on to that concept of hard hearts because it will come up again. But here we see that the diabolical debate ends with the religious leaders because we see in verse 12 the deep disappointment experienced. There is deep grief in the heart of Jesus. He will not give into their demands. Verse 12 says he sighed deeply in his spirit. Instead of a sign from Jesus, we get a sigh from Jesus. He had performed enough miracles. John says there's not enough books in the world to contain every sign that Jesus performed. And here they're asking for more. The depth of doubt in their hearts wounded Jesus deeply. They had hard hearts of unbelief. Literally, verse 12 says that Jesus groaned in his spirit. He sighed. And then he said, notice verse 12, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. This generation refers primarily to the Jewish people. They were just as recalcitrant as the Exodus generation in the wilderness. Deuteronomy 32.5 described them as a crooked and twisted or perverted generation. The generation of Noah was the same way. Noah was the only righteous one in that generation. Psalm 95 speaks about Israel. God says, for 40 years I loathed that generation. I said they are a people who go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Jesus' heart is heavy with the heart of God because he is God and he sees there's unbelief in their hearts. This evil generation. Same language of the Old Testament. Compare that, by the way, with the reaction of the Gentile crowds across the sea. You remember those Gentile crowds across the sea. They saw all the miracles of Jesus, Matthew tells us, bringing with them the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, many others. They put them at Jesus' feet. He healed them. The crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, the blind seeing, and they glorified the God of Israel. No glorifying of the God of Israel here from the very ones of Israel. Jesus was fed up with this generation, led by the religious leaders. They had the covenants of God. They had the oracles of God, yet they wanted another sign? Jesus responds, notice your Bibles again, verse 12, truly I say to you, no sign will be given this generation. Those are words of a solemn declaration sort, unalterable. Jesus was serious. Their hearts were hard. His heart was heavy. And he would not be forced to perform miracles from hard hearts of unbelief. It's interesting that that phrase, no sign will be given to this generation, it's really a difficult phrase to translate. Literally, it says, if a sign shall be given to this generation, and then leaves the sentence incomplete. It's sort of like a fill in the blank. If a sign is given to this generation, then fill in the blank. Perhaps it's sort of like a parent saying to their child, if I have to come over there, Well, the child knows, fill in the blank, supply the meaning. The child knows, the child gets the message. Many commentators wonder, what is the fill in the blank? If a sign is given to this generation, may I die, Jesus says. If a sign is given to this generation, may I be cursed. This is strong language. And Matthew 16 helps us see What is going on here? Turn back to Matthew chapter 16 for a moment. Mark leaves a lot out. Matthew gives us the fuller answer of Jesus, Matthew 16. They approach Jesus, testing him, asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Jesus answered them, verse 2, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. 
You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. Jesus illustrates their unbelief, doesn't he? You want a sign in the skies? Weather at this time was predicted by looking at the sky, the color of the sky. Jesus is saying, you know how to predict the weather, but you can't look at all I've done, put two and two together and conclude that I've come from God. You're here to tell me that you recognize a coming storm in the sky, but you can't recognize the coming Savior when he stands in your midst? It's been written all over the place. The whole world has been changed through all my signs and all my miracles. Quite literally, God wrote it in the skies. The star of Bethlehem pointed to the birth of Jesus. Not only did these religious leaders not understand the symbolism behind Jesus' miracles, they didn't even believe in the source behind them. His power couldn't be denied, but instead of attributing Jesus' power to God, they attributed his power to Satan. So they wanted a sign similar to what Joshua experienced with the sun and the moon standing still. They wanted a sign from heaven, a sign like the manna coming down that proved that Jesus came from God. What more could Jesus do? I mean, how could Jesus operate in the power of Satan when he's casting Satan's demons out? This isn't just sinful, it's stupid. It's stupid. Hard hearts, of unbelief. And that sort of unbelief leads to verse 13, where we see the damning departure. The damning departure. Verse 13. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. The other side of what? The other side of the sea. Remember the geography, it's important. Jesus is currently on the western side of the Sea of Galilee, Jewish territory. He had just crossed over there from coming from the eastern side, Gentile territory, and feeding the 4,000 plus people with the loaves. Mark tells us here in verse 13, he left them. That is, he's leaving the Jewish side. Did you catch that? He's leaving the Jewish side to go to the Gentile side. This is Mark's way of communicating. Listen to this, that Jesus was turning his back on the religious establishment, the generation of Jews who followed them in unbelief. It's a parture of judgment. From this point on, Jesus will not return to Galilee. He sets his face to Jerusalem to the cross what a horrible reality to have Christ turn his back on you get into his boat and sail away let me just tell you he ultimately does that very thing to everyone who rejects his light of revelation there may come a time in your life where he gives no more signs no more opportunities no more blessings no more opportunities to hear the gospel he sails away into the night and as he does his light goes with him you'll never see him again Don't love your darkness of sin because that will lead to a rejection of Christ, a failure to coming to the light for fear that your evil deeds will be exposed. Turn from your sin. Repent from your sin. Jesus says all sinners will be cast into the everlasting lake of fire. Jesus spoke about hell more than anyone else in the Bible. He spoke about hell more than he spoke about heaven. He described it as outer darkness because it's full of people who reject the light of the gospel. True faith takes Christ at his word. True faith steps into the boat with Jesus, leaving the supposed safety of the shores, even if this means storms assail you. Listen, it's better to be in the boat with Jesus than to have one foot on land and one foot in hell. The supposed security of the world's shore is nothing but sinking sand. You want to follow the ways of the unregenerate rebellious liberal progressive church you'll do that and you'll follow them straight into hell you want to be like the world follow the ways of the world live like the world smell like the world look like the world you'll follow them into hell better to get in the boat with jesus even even in your doubts better to get in the boat with jesus for what you know what you see to be true to trust in him as i said scripture has provided enough revelation for us to trust and know christ with joy and peace. Peter, Peter is so helpful. Peter, the one who doubted, the one who went to walk on the water in faith and then started to sink. Peter tells us this 
He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. He's given to us everything that pertains to life and godliness through the gospel, through Christ. We're to believe in him. But now the scene shifts. We move from the diabolical debate, verse 11, the deep disappointment, verse 12, the damning departure, verse 13, now to verses 14 and 15, number four, the disobedient disciples. Notice verse 14. Now, they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. Now, if you were writing a comedy act, this would be funny given the fact Jesus had just multiplied loaves of bread. How could they be so forgetful to forget bread? In fact, they had some left over. Seven baskets full left over. Enough to carry them on through wherever they went in their journey. Where did that bread go? Where did that bread go? Now the default interpretation of this passage teaches, catch this, the disciples forgot the bread and that's why They discussed this fact in verse 16. They began discussing why they had no bread. The idea is that their discussion is concern over a lack of bread, and that's what Jesus rebukes them for. He rebukes them for a lack of faith, not trusting in Jesus to provide for them even if there's only one loaf. And I'll admit to you this morning, I think it's tempting to interpret the passage this way, but I'm also here to tell you I think it completely misses the point of Mark. Jesus does not rebuke them for a lack of faith. Notice with me in verse 17. Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? He's rebuking them for hard hearts. This isn't faithlessness or forgetfulness. It's hard hardness. This is defiance. Later, when Jesus questions them about the feeding incidents, How many leftovers were there? They passed that test with flying colors. They understood the symbolism. It's just they were resistant to what Jesus was teaching. Perhaps if the disciples were struggling with faith, Jesus would have condescended to them and multiplied that loaf to strengthen their faith. Instead of doing that, he rebukes them. They understood. They had hard hearts. Now, the reason I say this is because they had a struggle with his identity. Later on in chapter 8, Jesus asked them, who do they think that he is? This is followed by Jesus declaring that he will be delivered, over, arrested, but he'll rise again. And you remember on that occasion, Peter rebuked him. Peter rebuked him. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You don't understand my mission. Get behind me, Satan. Peter's attempt at halting the advancement of Christ's kingdom was just as diabolical and satanic as the religious leaders trying to stop Jesus. And it appears to me that Jesus wants them to understand this will come with suffering. Notice with me in verse 20 or 33. Turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter, said, Get behind me, Satan, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. I wonder what that's about. You want to have favor with man, the religious leaders. You are worried about this run-in we just had across the sea. You're worried about the judgment I pronounced on them. You're worried for your own life, your own suffering, your own rejection. You don't understand this is the way the kingdom of God advances. You see, Jesus' concept of Messiahship, though more in line with the Old Testament, didn't match the popular pop theology of the day concerning the role of the Messiah to not just be Israel's Savior, but the Savior of the world. Back to verse 14. They had forgotten bread. Epilon thanomai is the word for forgotten It can mean a lapse of memory, but it can also mean willful neglect. And the argument I would make is that it means willful neglect, 
disobedience by the disciples. Get a little bit technical here. We know that Mark is using words from the Greek translation of the Old Testament known as the Septuagint. And every time he does it, he does it 50 sometimes, he's pointing back to the Old Testament. These are referred to by theologians as the Septuagintal hexlegomena. Little references back to the Septuagint. Roughly 90% of the occurrences of this Greek word translated forgotten in verse 14, epilon thanomai, does not refer to a lapse of memory. It refers to a willful forgetfulness. An excuse. Oh, I forgot the bread. Purposeful neglect. Short-sightedness. So when it says in verse 14, they forgot, they had forgotten to bring bread and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. They were opposing Jesus. You remember, they didn't offer many solutions to the food crisis of the Gentile households who were hungry. They now have a run-in with the religious leaders. Jesus says, I'm done with you. I won't debate you anymore. I'm done with you. He crosses the lake. Where are they going? They're going back to the Gentile side. The disciples understand that. We're going back to the Gentile side. Jesus is going to minister to the Gentiles. Jesus is judging Israel. They're fearful. One scholar puts it this way, and I quote, Since the disciples have seen that previous journeys to Gentile territory have provided occasions for, and if not actually precipitated, the extension of Israel's inheritance of salvation to those not of Israel, Jesus' display of deliberate intention to return there would be taken by them as a signal of his determination to show once more to those on the other side, that is Gentiles, that they are within the purview of divine favor. The background then of the disciples' refusal to bring bread and Mark's motivation Uh, In Mark's view, its motivation is the disciples' anticipation of a renewal of the demonstrations of divine favor similar to those manifested by Jesus in earlier stages of his ministry. He goes on to say, the intention behind the disciples' refusal to take extra loaves becomes clear. And the question of how the refusal itself can make plain to Jesus that his disciples stand opposed to his ministry is answered. For as Mark notes, when the disciples set out with Jesus on their journey... That is, when their perception of the import of this journey dawns upon them, they then recall that it was from the extra loaves which they had with them that Jesus multiplied. They found bread and Jesus multiplied it. The reason for the disciples forgetting to take extra loaves is therefore to deny those not of Israel the bread which Jesus had previously demonstrated was theirs. Those outside of the covenants. They have all this leftover bread. What happened to that? That sailing down the Sea of Galilee, floating down the Sea of Galilee? You only have one loaf of bread with you? You forgot all the rest? I don't think so. Willful disobedience. They don't want to feed any more Gentiles. They are captivated by the religious establishment and their approval. That's what you need to understand. And in verse 15... Jesus uses his knowledge that they purposely brought only one loaf of bread to illustrate to them a lesson. Verse 15, he cautioned them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Jesus still has the hard-heartedness of the Pharisees on his mind. He says here, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. What is the leaven of Herod? Well, The leaven of Herod would have been the leaven of the Sadducees. The Sadducees were in cahoots with Herod. But the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod amounted to two things, unbelief and hypocrisy. The Pharisees hated Gentiles. They viewed them outside of the kingdom, outside of the covenants. The Sadducees were in cahoots with Herod. They were men of the machine, government men. Herod, like the Sadducees, were all for the Hellenism the Hellenization of that known world, the expansion of the Roman kingdom, not God's kingdom. Herod himself rejected the message of John the Baptist, had him beheaded, and the Sadducees were just as worldly, focused on the here and now. They were opportunistic. They were political. They were in cahoots with Rome. Had no interest in God's spiritual kingdom. In this sense, the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod or the Sadducees was one and the same. Neither group had a view beyond their own ambitions. 
whether in achieving spiritual salvation through Judaism and works of the law, Pharisees, or political opportunities through Rome. Disciples understand Jesus is calling for radical discipleship, the kind where the gospel turns the world upside down, the kind that comes with rejection and castigation from both the Pharisees, the religious authorities, and the Sadducees and Herod, that is the civil authorities. Leaven in scripture is usually used negatively, right? To describe influence, a tiny amount of yeast or leaven affects a whole lump of dough. So when Jesus in verse 15 cautioned them, and warned them it, it, literally in the greek it means he charged them he commanded them unlike the pharisees and sadducees these were true disciples but these true disciples were being influenced by the leaven of legalism of the pharisees and the worldliness of the sadducees and even a little leaven could rise to bigger problems in the dough the pharisees influence did not result and eating of Jesus, the bread of life, right? Their leaven influenced legalism, works salvation. Jesus said in Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel around on sea and land uh, to make one proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Salvation is not based on good works, religious pedigree, Phariseeism. That false system, that error is leaven that just a little of it will corrupt the whole thing. The leaven of Herod was the leaven of the Sadducees. The Sadducees' leavening influence was that of rationalism, denying basic Christian doctrinal truths, materialism, the love of money, secularism, the love and acceptance of the state, skepticism, the nobility of, of questioning God's absolute truth and authority, supposed nobility. So Jesus is commanding his disciples, watch out, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, the leaven of Herod, which is essentially the same. If you are not careful, you will be influenced by these things. So whether it's the heretical doctrine of the Pharisees, which results in legalism, or it's the belief system of the Sadducees which denies the supernatural or it's the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and legalism or it's the worldly living of the Sadducees to be like the culture around them Jesus says stay away stay far away do not be influenced by them my kingdom is not of this world all throughout scripture leaven is associated with pride 1 Corinthians 5 6 wickedness 1 Corinthians 5 8 False teaching, Galatians 5, 9. So Jesus is warning his disciples against the type of unbelief that doesn't take Jesus at his word, that doesn't properly interpret theology, that seeks to look and hold to the values of the world around us, whether that of the religious world or the secular world. Such is not a kingdom outlook. And what all this meant for the disciples was a rejection of Gentile inclusion into the covenants of God. They don't want to go on the other side of the sea. They don't want to leave the comfort of the religious establishment. They don't want to fraternize with the Gentiles. They now understand this kingdom is a worldwide kingdom with worldwide ramifications and we're going to suffer for it. Their view of the kingdom was myopic. Too heavily influenced by the leaven of the Pharisees. A narrow view now we have a narrow view of the gospel. We know there is salvation in no one else but Jesus. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. But our view of the gospel, while narrow, means we have a macro view of the kingdom. That God's grace is so deep, so wide, it's for any sinner that is hungry and pursues the righteousness of God by the enabling power of the Spirit of God. We believe in God's sovereignty, election, predestination. But that does not stun our view of the growth of the kingdom in the world. If God is sovereign, he can draw the nations to himself and he's promised to do that. And it's neither the leavening influence of legalism, that is secluding ourselves from unclean sinners, separating ourselves, that's the way of the Pharisees, nor assimilation and compromise with the world, that's the way of the Sadducees, that will bring God's kingdom we must speak the gospel, live the gospel, and trust that in so doing, God will bring the nations to himself. The disciples are struggling with this. 
Beloved, we are to engage with culture as Christians, not escape it. We are to stand against the evangelical church when they go astray. We are to damn religious hypocrisy, not deny it or try to cover it up. We are to clearly communicate the gospel to the world, not cowardly compromise this gospel, trying to be like the world, trying to be like the worldly visible church. No, we stand with Jesus no matter what it costs us. That is the growth of the kingdom. That is the power of the kingdom. That is a kingdom outlook. We don't want the leaven of the Pharisees, the religious authorities, the leaven of the Sadducees and Herod, the civil authorities, We do not pander to their kingdom principles. We proclaim the principles of King Jesus. The disciples are starting to see this. Jesus is a world changer. And they're not sure it jives with their ideas and ideologies or their theology, quite frankly, because there's too many Gentiles that are involved in this. So Jesus rebukes them for being influenced by things other than his word and works. Notice what happens next. We move number five to the dueling discussion. Verse 16, and they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. Now, I take this as a theological discussion. Apparently, there was some disagreement. They're dueling back and forth. A disagreement among the twelve as to what Jesus meant. What did Jesus mean about the leavening influence of the Pharisees and Herod? He's mentioning yeast. We've had all this bread multiplied before our eyes. What does this mean? Well, perhaps there were some disciples who prided themselves in a literal interpretation. They failed to see the spiritual meaning behind what Jesus was doing. And they concluded, I know what Jesus is saying. He's saying we should accept no loaf of bread from the Pharisees or Sadducees. Separatists, pietists, only seeing the literal meaning, not seeing the symbolism, overlooking the fact that Jesus fulfilled every lamb that was ever offered in the Old Testament. He was a living illustration of that. Not seeing that when Jesus raised dead people, it was proving that he could raise dead souls. When he gave sight to the blind, spiritual eyes, hearing to the deaf, spiritual ears. Now, leaven really does make bread rise. But the type of leaven and bread Jesus spoke of was associated with the world of the spiritual, not the earthly. By the way, Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. And did he not just say in chapter 7, it's not what goes into the body that makes you unclean. So any disciple that may have offered the argument, well, Jesus is speaking literally here, we cannot eat the bread of the Pharisees and Sadducees, clearly misses the point. Perhaps some of the other disciples began discussing, well, maybe Jesus is rebuking us for not bringing bread. I mean, that sort of is an oversight on our part, and although we did it on purpose, maybe he doesn't quite understand that, and uh, he's upset with us because we don't have lunch plans. Once again, their view of God was harsh, unmerciful, influenced by the Pharisees who taught you had to earn God's favor, and the first time you screwed up, God's going to nail you, and you're out of the kingdom of God. No grace, no mercy. But maybe there were other elements in the discussion. I think that maybe there was some blame shifting here. After all, if they purposely only brought one loaf with them because they didn't want Jesus to multiply bread to feed more hungry Gentiles, perhaps the smart ones said, I told you this would happen. I told you he would catch on. He would be able to read our hearts. But there's something even more. This discussion, they began discussing with one another the fact they had no bread. They were discussing, I think, that um, Jesus was on a worldwide campaign to bring Gentiles into the covenant. And although uh, their bigoted feelings wouldn't have liked that, even if they would have embraced that, they would have said, that is impossible. That will not happen. And that gives rise to the rest of the passage. We move from the diabolical debate that ends with the Pharisees and religious leaders, verse 11. The deep disappointment experienced, verse 12, by Jesus. The damning departure ensued, verse 13. The disobedient disciples exposed, verses 14 and 15. The dueling discussion erupting, verse 16. Now number six, to the deeper doctrine enforced. Jesus is going to make his point patiently. 
teaching the disciples. Verses 17 through 21, he asked to correct them because if the issue was a lack of faith, such lack of faith concerned his identity as the world's Messiah. So Jesus, aware of this, said to them, why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Very interesting, if you skip back with me to Matthew chapter 8, just quickly, Matthew chapter 8 and verse 16 That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirits with a word. He healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Failed to see the deeper doctrine there. Why did Jesus do all these miracles? To show that he's the sympathetic, compassionate Savior. The disciples suffered from pessimism, a literal interpretation of Jesus' words and actions. They didn't see the deeper meaning to everything Jesus said, everything he did. And so this is the key to the entire passage, verses 17 through 21. Their discussion revealed they had weak faith and, I think, a purposeful resistance to Jesus' campaign to save the world. They were fearful. You mean this means we don't have the approval of the Pharisees? Yeah, get rid of that leaven. No approval of Rome? The Sadducees? Herod? Get rid of it. You don't need it. I'm on to something deeper here. Seven penetrating questions. First, he says, you have hard hearts. And what he asks, he says, why are you discussing the fact you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Hard heads. Hard heads. You don't understand. You don't perceive. Hard hearts. Notice, are your hearts hardened? Having eyes do you not see? Having ears do you not hear? Almost verbatim quotation from Isaiah chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. An allusion to Isaiah 63, 17, O foolish and senseless people who have eyes but see not, have ears but hear not. Psalm 95, do not harden your hearts as you did in the wilderness. Ezekiel 12, verse 2, Son of man, you dwell in the midst of a rebellious house who have eyes to see but see not, who have ears to hear but hear not, for they are a rebellious house. In asking these questions, Jesus is making a statement, right? Here's a statement. He's saying to them, you are acting just like the Pharisees and Sadducees. You're being influenced by them. You're not seeing beyond what I'm saying, what I'm doing. And so notice the end of verse 18. Do you not remember? Remember what? When I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, 12. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you really not yet understand? It's another way of saying, come on. You remembered the leftovers. He's forcing them to repeat those numbers. Remember, those numbers are important. When Jesus teaches numerology, let me just uh, let your soul rest at ease, you can adopt numerology. The Bible affirms numerology, you can hold to it. Not the crazy, quacky kind, but the kind of Jesus. What did the 12 leftover baskets represent? It was a lunch for the 12 apostles. 12 apostles represents the 12 tribes of Israel, newly reconstituted Israel, 12 smaller baskets, the small remnant of Jews that would be saved. The seven leftover baskets from the feeding of the Gentiles, what did that represent? That represented, because they were larger baskets, the plentiful bread that would be supplied to the world the hungry Gentile masses that would believe in Jesus. That's what it foreshadowed. 
God would begin with the 12, a small Jewish remnant, but there would be enough bread for everyone. And it's interesting that Jesus uses the Greek words kephnos and spurus. Kephnos, smaller baskets, verse 19. Spurus, larger hamper baskets, verse 20. Two different Greek words. There's enough bread for Gentiles. Seven Baskets the size that a man could fit in. Jesus loved illustrations. Turn back to Matthew chapter 13. None is clearer than in his parables, right? What have we been speaking about? Uh, Bread? Leaven? Okay. What does this mean? Verse 33, Matthew 13, 33. He told them another parable. Here it is. The kingdom of heaven is like what? Leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now do you understand why Jesus spoke about being aware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Herod? Pharisees had their own little kingdom Sadducees and Herod had their own little kingdom, big kingdom, Rome. Pharisees had their religious kingdom where they were important, their world. Jesus says there's another kind of leaven that will permeate the world. It's the leaven of the gospel. Beware of the leaven of false teaching. Beware of the leaven of secular worldly ideologies. Embrace the gospel. It will change the world. It's the only thing that can change the world. Wasn't the leaven of the Pharisees religiously exclusive legalistic ways that would grow God's kingdom? It's not the secular state of Rome to which the Sadducees were attached. The kingdom would grow through the preaching of free grace, preaching of the good news of Christ to the nations, telling them God's kingdom was at hand. So it seems to me that Jesus is Rebuke of the disciples had nothing to do with a lack of faith at its core. They didn't forget bread. That was a convenient excuse. They didn't want to accept what Jesus was teaching. That was the issue. They were not doubtful. They were disobedient. And Jesus is saying, look, you can't be my disciple if you don't trust me. By faith, follow me. They could read in between the lines. They knew the answers to the test. How many leftovers were there? Twelve. How many leftovers were there? Seven. They knew. They weren't stupid. They didn't suffer from theological confusion as much as theological rejection. What Jesus was implying in supplying the bread. You know, as Christians, we must be subservient to Scripture alone as our final authority, and this means we must be willing to study the depth of it, right? Right? That's the lesson this morning. Not what's on the surface, what's below it, what's underneath it. And when we discover it, we are to accept it. We must be willing to see what Scripture as a whole teaches about the kingdoms and the covenants. The disciples' problem was that they interpreted everything literalistically. They failed to see the deeper spiritual meaning. And when they did, they were too afraid to embrace it. Their fear was rooted in the religious status quo. Their fear was rooted in the radical implications that could come from civil authorities. Rejection from the visible church, rejection from the world. That's what they were fearful of. That is why Peter said, you cannot go to the cross. And that's why Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Get out of my way. Jesus calls us to pick up our cross and follow him. So may he give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand these glorious truths, the implications for our lives. Big lesson is this. This only comes through intense study of his word and prayer that God will give us the strength to see and to accept and embrace and live out these truths. Jesus promised the spirit will guide you into all truth. That comes through the study of his word, prayer, fasting, looking, longing for God's kingdom, proclaiming the leaven of the gospel 
so that it permeates our little worlds and ultimately the world at large so that Jew and Gentile come into the covenants of God under the banner of Christ and he is seen as the one true and only king. Don't forget the bread. The bread of the gospel is key. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you, Lord, for these scriptures that have been opened up to us, Lord, in a powerful way by your spirit, enabling us to see, Lord, what we otherwise wouldn't be able to see were it not for your spirit who guides us into all truth. Lord, uh, the depth of your word is overwhelming at times. Lord, it's convicting because we read it quickly. We sort of understand it on the surface. We fail to see the depth of implications, applications, theology. Lord, help us, uh, Lord, not just to see the depth of your word, but Father, help us to live it out. Help us to truly love Christ, follow Christ, honor him, live for him, not be fearful of suffering and rejection, but Father, by faith, take him at his word to trust in the power of the gospel, even though it's foolishness to many. Many stumble over it, but we don't. It's our foundation. It's what we stand on. It's what we must be willing to die for. It's what we live for. Help us to that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope this sermon from God's Word has ministered to your soul. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, www.ChristReformedCC.com. Also, for access to more sermons, articles, and a podcast I host entitled Today in Church, His Story, you can visit www.PastorAndrewSmith.com.